You're listening to the Branches HB Podcast. By way of introduction into this talk out of Matthew chapter 16, I want to remind you of the episode last week because it's pertinent for the episode this week. We have the Pharisees and Sadducees, this unlikely alliance, these two kind of mortal enemies when it came to influencing the Jewish population. They were coming together. They became allies to stand against Jesus. And they came to him with this test. They were asking for a sign from heaven. And Jesus not only denied their request for a sign, he actually warned his followers, his disciples, hey, watch out for the leaven, the yeast of these Pharisees and Sadducees, meaning the teaching and influence that they were bringing in. The disciples of Jesus, they were worried that Jesus was talking about bread when he talked about yeast and leaven. And that's where their mind was at. It was a perfect representation of how we so often as disciples, we get caught up in the practical concerns, the practical circumstances and challenges in front of us. When Jesus is saying, look, use your energy. Use all those internal resources you have to fight this battle, the battle for your heart. Guard your heart above all else, because everything else you do flows from your heart. Now, we're going to see as we get into this conversation around discipleship that our hearts, man, in some ways, they can be so right and at the same time be so wrong. I mean, we can have these grand aspirations and desires to be about God's plan and His kingdom, and yet at the same time go about it in a way that ends up going against his actual cause. We'll find all that as we study here, Matthew chapter 16. The verses will also be on the screens. Let's open up here to verse 13. It reads, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. 
Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is a pretty complicated set of episodes for the disciple Peter, right? I mean, he goes from hero to zero very, very quickly in just a few verses. And the thing that's so interesting about Peter in this passage is that he starts with the right confession. He starts with the right belief. He's got the right words, but we find out along the way that he's fighting for the wrong kingdom, that his heart's not fully in the right place. You've probably heard this analogy before, but it's similar to what happens on the day of a wedding. Two people come together and they make these vows with each other, you know, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And these two individuals that are making these vows, do they really understand the fullness of what they're saying? You know, for better or for worse? How many months had we been dating? 13 months? That 13 months was all better. You know, I'm applying for the job of husband. I I am selling, you know, that I am going to be good in this role. It's all better. What's worse? I don't even have any idea what worse is. Sickness and in health? You know, the worst I saw was you maybe got a cold, Whitney, you know? And I wasn't there through a hip replacement or, you know, some, some bigger illness, you know? It, it was the smallest things, but yet I'm making these commitments. You know, my wife's saying in sickness and in health, she had no idea that the first five years of our marriage, I'd be a basket case, mentally. Mentally sick, like literally. Four months in, I I take this role as lead pastor, and I have no idea how to manage my stress. I was sick from like the first four months on through five years. Did she know that? No, but we're standing there, and we're making the right confessions. There's nothing wrong with the confessions and the vows. They're good vows. Even if our hearts are just, you know, in this place going, you know, I'm getting married. That's where our heart's at. We're just celebrating. We're not thinking about the worst. We're not thinking about the sickness. It's the same sort of confession for Peter. There was nothing wrong with his confession. I mean, let's start there. It's great. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king, the prophesied king of the Old Testament. He's the son, the one and only son of the living God. You know, but what he has in his heart connected to that gets revealed along the way. But it's a good confession. It's it's the right words. You know, and Jesus commends Peter for it. He goes, look, this has been revealed to you not by flesh and blood. This is a revelation of God. And you're Peter... And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. The name Peter means rock, so it's a wordplay here. Some people, because they're responding to the years of Catholic history and the theology of a pope, and this is kind of a defense of the pope in Catholic theology, they'll say, uh, you know, it, Jesus wasn't referring to Peter when he said, you know, you're Peter. He pointed back to himself and said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. But it doesn't say that in the text. It doesn't say he was finger pointing this way and then that way. Some people will say, well, he's pointing to Peter saying, you're Peter and on this rock, this confession that I'm the Messiah, that confession of faith, I'm going to build my church. It's a better understanding, but I think it's just a simple reading. I think Jesus is just looking at Peter. He says, you're a rock and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. He's going to be one of the foundational apostles, just like his reference in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. The church is going to be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Yeah, he's going to have a foundational role in the early church. Can't argue with that in the book of Acts. And all this authority is conferred on him, and truly to the other apostles. He says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is going to be loosed in heaven. Some people interpret that down the road of like spiritual warfare, and this is dealing with the demonic, but if you were the Jewish audience, you understood that this was really simply just about 
permitting certain behaviors and prohibiting other behaviors. You know, a rabbi would go around saying, hey, you're bound to these laws and bound to observing them this way, or you're free. You know, the way that you are going to live, it's permissible. You're not bound by those. You're, you're loosed to go do what you want to do. And so in the same way Jesus is establishing, look, these apostles, guys like Peter, they're going to be setting up the ethics, what is right and wrong in this early church community. And we see that play out through the writing of the epistles being authoritative for us in the New Testament. It has, you know, the grounds of what Christian ethics looks like, what, what's in bounds and what's out of bounds for us as believers. But amidst all this authority getting conferred on Peter. We've got to keep in perspective who's the real boss in town. Because Jesus says, you're Peter and on this rock I will build my church. You know, he's establishing Peter and some of the other apostles as generals, but he's the commander-in-chief. And he's got some strong statements that ought to give us confidence as believers. The first time we're referenced in the Bible. This is the first time Jesus talks about his people his assembly, the church, you and I, brothers and sisters here at Branches. First time he speaks of us, he pairs that with this. The gates of Hades will not prevail against us. What an amazing promise to pair. You know, before we've even begun as the church, before the church is even born, he's saying they're going to be victorious. Even death itself is not going to stand against them. You know, with my mom, she just had emergency stomach surgery this last week. She got through surgery, and she's recovering well. She's supposed to go visit her brother in two weeks in New York, and the trip got canceled last time because of COVID and everything else. It's been so long since she's seen her brother. It's her last surviving sibling. And so she really wants to get there, but it's two weeks out. I'm telling her, you got to live with confidence. You know, you got to go into this recovery. you got to expect that you're going to get on that plane. You're going to be ready to go. You know, I'm trying to pump her up. I'm trying to talk her up. You know, you can do this. And it's this very aspirational attitude that I'm trying to give to her. But when Jesus says this regarding the church, and he's instilling this sort of confidence in us, I want you to know it's not aspirational. It's definitive. Because Jesus knows the end from the beginning. I talked to you last week about this unshakable confidence that God wants to instill in his people. This is why he knows the end from the beginning. He knows that in death, will destroy his church. You don't have to check the trends. You don't have to check the spreadsheets, what's going on in society. Jesus said, I will build my church. But the way he would build his church was not in a way that anyone anticipated, including Peter, right? He had the right confession, but he quickly revealed he was fighting for the wrong kingdom. See, Jesus began to explain the method of his victory, how he was going to build his church. And it involved him going to Jerusalem and suffering many things at the hands of the Jewish authorities. And then he was going to be delivered over unto death before being raised to life. And Peter was twisted in knots listening to Jesus speak this way. He pulls Jesus aside and begins to correct him, to rebuke him, to say, there's no way. You're not going to undergo these things. There's, that's not going to happen. You're supposed to be victorious. You're supposed to conquer them when you get to Jerusalem. And we know that Peter really means what he's saying. Like, no way. There's no way you're going to die. Because later on, when Jesus is getting arrested, right, and they're coming to apprehend him, take him to the cross, the disciples cry out, Jesus, should we use our swords? And Peter's already cut a guy's ear off. 
The other guys at least ask first, right? They're like, hey, should we draw our swords? And there's, a, there's an ear on the ground already. We can assume he was going for the guy's head. And the guy moved, and it just got the ear. Right? That's how serious he was that this was not going to happen this way. And Jesus responds to him with some of the harshest words we have reserved for anyone in the Scriptures. And this is Peter. This is a rock on which Jesus was going to build his church. One of these foundational individuals, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. You are a stumbling block that is in my way. Get behind me. Earlier, Peter was a medium through which God revealed this amazing revelation of Jesus as Messiah. And then unbeknownst to him, moments later, he's his vehicle through which Satan is voicing his opposition to the Messiah's plan. Take note of this, church. We often have our guard up with regard to Satan and spiritual oppression. A lot of times we're talking about external threats. You know, circumstances that are unfortunate, an illness that befalls us, and we're saying, oh, Satan, this is spiritual oppression outside of us. But when you look at the work of Satan in this passage, it doesn't have to do with anything external, anything out here in the circumstances. The influence of Satan was in Peter's heart and in his mind. And in his worldview, that's why it's so important for us to guard our hearts, just like we talked about last week. We've got to guard our hearts and our vision against the influence of satanic values. But what was so satanic about what Peter was saying? I mean, when we think about Satanism, we think about, you know, pentagrams, and mutilating animals, and, you know, occult rituals and things like that. And Peter's just wanted to protect Jesus. What's so satanic about that? But wasn't that the very approach of Satan to Jesus when he was testing him in the wilderness? Chapter 4. Didn't Satan approach Jesus as if he was on Jesus' side? Didn't he say, oh, you're very hungry, you should make some bread. Oh, you've got a great influence, we should give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Oh man, jump down from the height of the temple and the angels will save you. You're going to demonstrate your authority before a watching audience. I mean, the work of Satan so often masks itself as noble. That's what's so difficult about the work of Satan. We, we think it's all these blatant things outside of us. Oh, but no, sometimes it's this thought that comes from us, you know? We're saying, oh man, we've got to preserve our Christian heritage. We've got to expand our Christian influence in the world. We need to magnify Jesus. You know, that can be the motive. That can be the driving force behind it. But in what way are we going to accomplish that? And on whose terms? Peter was operating by an influence that was evil to accomplish what he thought was a very good thing. According to Jesus, though, Peter was appealing to things of human human concerns, not the concerns of God. Humankind thinks victory can only come by oppressing your enemies, not by suffering at their hands. Humankind thinks the only way to win the game of life is to gain and acquire, not lose and release. Humankind thinks everything that's most important is what happens in the here and now, not what's going to happen when all of this is over. So here Jesus has said, I will build my church and this is the way I'm going to go about it. And Peter interrupted him and said, 
know Jesus, I will build your church, and this is the way I'm going to go about it. And that's been one of the terrible temptations of Christians through the centuries. Jesus said he would build his church, and he gave us the way he would do it, and we say, no way, we'll build your church for you, and this is the way we're going to go about it. And it's the human way. Two weeks ago, I went to a local conference of pastors. I've been going to conferences for as long as I've been a pastor, 13 years. And anytime you get pastors together at these conferences, it always seems like we're unveiling the way forward for the church that's going to fix all of our problems. And over the last 13 years, it's been a moving target. It's always a different program. It's always a different way to structure the church. Oh, we missed it. We got a blind spot. We should have been doing it this way the whole time. Let's run over here. No, let's structure it this way. And it's just moving chips on the table. We're not really getting together and talking about spiritual transformation, the simple obedience of what Jesus is calling us into. So here's another like quick fix in the structure. Oh, no, you just need to release this program and everything's going to be better. And, and it's such a distraction to me. I, I, I really can't go into these settings anymore and feel settled. I had to leave early. I just was all wrestled. Because when I think about over the last 10 years that I've been a pastor in this role, 50 plus percent of my peers who were raised in the church have left the church. I don't think that there's any reason anybody should be getting up in front of anyone else and saying, here's how we can do it right. Because we don't have any idea what we're doing. No one knows what we're doing. And to talk about all these strategies, ideas, and here's what's going on in secular society, and if we just mimic that in the church and use these tools from the business world, it's like, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Because that is not the answer. That is going to confuse the answer. When Jesus tells Peter that he's a stumbling block, the word picture in that is not just the stone that you trip on. It's like a trap that's set. And, and you hit the, 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 the release on the trap, and it captures an animal. You trip on that, and you fall into the trap. You get captured. And that's what's happening here. Peter, you're the example of somebody who's been caught in this trap. You have this vision of self-protection and advancement through earthly means. And you've fallen victim to the vision of Satan. This is the way Satan would go about it. And it's going to be a total distraction. And I mean, it can be the same thing for us. We can say, oh, we want to promote the church. We want to promote Jesus. But if we compromise Jesus in service of that goal, we've just fallen into the most devious trap Satan has ever set. If we say we're going to promote the church, if we say we're going to promote Jesus, and in service of that, we give up our Christ-likeness, the way of Jesus, that's the most devious trap Satan has ever said. Because then we won't be standing on anything at all. We won't be standing on anything at all. Jesus clarifies the means, the path, the way of those who would come after him how we would be formed for the interests of God. He says, this is it, verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple. Anyone in here want to be his disciple? I want to be Jesus' disciple. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. They have to walk the road of Jesus, not the road that Peter was suggesting. So the question is, do you and I want to be Jesus' disciples? Do we want the invitation that this is just extended because the question is, do we want to deny ourselves? 
do we want to say no to our own fulfillment of our desires? Do we want to lay down our lives in service of other people? In an expression of love akin to Jesus' love? Do we really want to be disciples on the terms that Jesus is laying out? For whoever wants to save their life, whoever wants to squeeze the juice out of life for themselves, whoever wants to gain and acquire and never be taxed on their time and never experience any discomfort, achieve all their goals, anyone like that is going to end up losing their life. But whoever wants to gain life, they're going to be those who lay down those goals. They are going to be those who lay down themselves in an effort to discover what is truly life. It's the same thing corporately. We can be a church together of people that wants to just grow and grow influence and acquire. But if we want the seat of authority in our society, that is discipleship with Satan. If that's our focus, if that's our mindset, our mindset corporately is to seek a place on the cross. That's what we should aspire to if we are Jesus' disciples. It's the church that gives itself up, the one that lays itself down. That's the one that is going to truly live. What does it matter, guys, if we rule and reign here, if we have all the influence in society and we get everything that we could ever dream of in our personal lives, we acquire it all, but yet we forfeit, we trade away our soul? I mean, that's the question that Jesus asks. He says, what's more important than your soul? What could you give in exchange for your soul? What would you wager your soul away for? I mean, imagine that. Imagine that everyone else is gone in this space. There's no one else here. That you're just standing before Jesus. All your possessions, all the other things of life, it's just you and Jesus, and you're giving this account before Jesus. And Jesus is asking you, what would you give in exchange for your soul? Fill in the blank. Tell me something in this world, some goal that you have, something you want to acquire. Fill in that blank. What is more important than your soul? You're going to wager your soul. You say, oh, you know, I just want that balance in my bank account. Here's my soul. Would you do that? You say, oh, I just want to get married. I just want to, you know, go through the life stages and have this life of fulfillment according to the American dream. And you trade away your soul for that. I think we'd all say there's nothing that we would give in exchange for our soul. There is nothing, nothing that we would release our soul for because there's nothing more important than it. So Jesus says, release all that stuff then. Live like your soul depends on me because your life does not depend on anything in this world. Our life depends on what Jesus says when he returns in his glory with all his angels and he rewards every single one of us for what? For what we've said, for what we've confessed, for what we've believed, for what we've thought. Is that what he's going to reward us for? He says, no, your life depends on this. When I return in my glory with all the angels, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to reward you based on the things that you have done. That's what our life depends on. And the question is, as we envision that day, what will Jesus say to you? What will Jesus say about what you have done when he comes with those rewards? Asking a question like this is sobering, but it is also perspective shifting. 
Because when you start thinking about a question like this, and it really sticks with you, what will Jesus say when he returns in glory with his angels and rewards his people for what they've done? What is he going to say to me? When you start asking that question, you've now entered the world of kingdom concerns. It's no longer earthly concerns and the concerns of this world. When you begin to live with this end in mind, now your mind is focused on the kingdom. But what end are you living with in mind? That's the question on a daily basis. For some of you, the end that you have in mind is, what am I going to do after college? You know, and that's what all your energy and your time is focused on. Some of you are going, you know, how is my kid going to do in baseball this year? Like, that's the end that you're focused on. You know, what's going to happen in this next season with my job? That's the end that you're focused on. What's going to happen after the midterm elections in America, in this nation? That's what your mind is focused on. Am I going to be ready for retirement by this date? That's the end that you have in mind, and that's what you're focused on. Peter was saying, what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem? And those are all human concerns. The end, the end, is when Jesus returns in his glory with his angels and rewards everyone according to what they have done. And he's going to reward everyone for the ways that they've followed him and given like he gave his life on the cross. Everything else belongs behind us. Just like Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of this world. Every one of those other concerns is secondary to that chief concern, that chief end that we have in mind belongs behind us so that we can keep a a view toward eternity. A lot of times I think we take matters into our own hands as I think about this passage. I think we take matters into our own hands, just like Peter did regarding the church. Because, you know, I'm hearing what you're saying, Jesus, but we're going to build the church this way. And he took it into his own hands. And I think when we talk about the meaning of life and achieving all that we need to achieve in life, we get anxious about it, we see all these messages about it, and we take the matters into our own hands. We say, we're going to acquire that by our own means. But it's our thinking. It's based on an earthly mindset. You know, when Peter took things into his own hands and he cut the guy's ear off, Jesus stopped him. He said, you stop that. Don't you know that I could do this your way? He said, if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels. I can do it that way. I could come with judgment. I could come with power and authority. I could come with influence and riches to establish my kingdom. But that's not the way I'm going to do it. And he actually healed the ear of the very person who took him under arrest to the cross. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the way I will build it is by laying down my life. And I am going to reward everyone who comes after me who does the very same thing. So I want to leave us with some questions as we enter into prayer that are akin to questions I've already asked as we move through this passage. My first question is this, what end do you have in mind? What end do you have in mind? Is your mind completely fixed on just moving through this next life stage, acquiring what you're supposed to acquire? It's this purchase that you want to make. It's this financial goal. What's the end that you're living with in front of you? Is it, oh, if I just achieve this certain weight on the scale? You know, that's going to become the narrative of what you're living for. 
And a lot of those answers that I'm talking about, they're temporary answers. They're earthly concerns. They have no eternal significance. What end are you living with in mind? The day that Jesus returns and rewards us for what we've done? As we think toward that day, I want us to consider, what do you think Jesus will say to you about what you have done? Because that day may come today, that day may come tomorrow, that you go to be with him or he comes to be with us. And we'll hear what he has to say about what we've done. What do you think Jesus will say to you? Do you think Jesus will say to us, yes, you killed it in the workplace, here's a reward. Oh, yeah, you rose through the ranks. You're a really successful person. Here's your reward. Do we get rewards for that, according to Jesus' teaching? Oh, man, you picked some great ones in the stock market. You're killing it. Here's a reward in heaven. You're so smart. Is that a reward? Oh, you moved through the life stages. You lived the American dream. Here's a reward. Oh, wow, you're beautiful, and people wanted you and wanted to be you. Here's a reward. That's success in this world, is it not? I've just laid out what success looks like. The world will tell you that's what life is all about. And none of that, we're told, gets a reward. So what do you think Jesus will say to you? And I know it's sobering, but it's also the entryway, the doorway to life. It challenges those presuppositions about what success really looks like. And invites us into that kingdom vision, the concerns of God. We've got to live with those concerns in mind if we're truly going to discover life. So would you pray with me as we consider these questions in this passage together this, this morning? Jesus, we confess to you, you are Lord, Messiah, you are the Son of the living God, and you have defined life in the terms of life in ways that are 180 degrees counter to the message that we hear in modern America. Your definition of life and success could not be more the opposite of what we hear all the time, of what we compare ourselves to all the time. But Lord, all those messages are just about the here and now. They're not about what comes after the now. The moment when you return in your glory with your angels and you reward each of us for what we've done. Lord, would we live in light of that end? Would we be filled with the concerns that are the concerns of you and not this world? Jesus, you present these questions to us. You challenge us not because you want to shame us, Lord. We believe that there's enough grace in the cross to forgive us our sin. But it's what comes after that, what we're filling ourselves with. Are we filling ourselves with the life of your kingdom? what we're going to be celebrating for eternity. It's not about earning your love or earning a place in your kingdom. It's about laying hold of the life that is eternal. So Jesus, would you place that end in the minds of all my brothers and sisters this morning? Would you inspire them so on the day that they meet with you, on the day that is the last day of their life, the first day of their eternity, when they have that conversation with you, Jesus, that it would be filled with rewards because they haven't wasted this moment, because they haven't wasted what you've placed in them, that they take up the path that 
they take up your cross, they lay themselves down, that they lay down their wants, that they deny themselves for the sake of love and the work of your kingdom. Jesus, they're going to receive rewards. Or let us live for those rewards, not the rewards of this life. I ask you right now to just consider in prayer. Ask the Lord. This would not just be a generalized message about the grand scheme of things, but it would, it would materialize into action. What is the Lord calling you into? When you're going to live with the end in mind, what are you going to change? What are you going to do? What are you going to fill your life with on the other side of a message like this? What's he going to lead you into? I want you to ask the Lord and to ask him to be specific because by the Holy Spirit, he can give us clarity of mind and heart. This is what it looks like for you to live with the end in mind. This is what it looks like for you to live for a reward that's eternal and not temporal in this world. Just ask the Lord to lead you, to guide you, to inspire you. What is that work that he's calling you into, all of us into, as we live in light of that end? Thanks so much for listening to the Branches HB podcast. For more information on Branches, you can visit our website at brancheshb.com or stay up to date with us on Instagram at brancheshb. As always, we'd love to have you at one of our Sunday gatherings. So come visit us at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Locations are available on our website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.